All right, let's dive in. We are in Matthew chapter 11 today. Uh, We do have Bibles in the back. My notes are in the foyer if you would like to to follow along. As you turn to Matthew chapter 11, let me review because last Sunday, we obviously, we finished up Matthew chapter 10, and we learned a lot. Uh, we, We learned about the 12 disciples. We learned about their personalities. We saw how they lived with Jesus And we also learned how they died for Jesus. Uh, We saw Jesus commission and ordain these 12 into apostles, giving them the supernatural powers to heal the sick, to cast out demons, and to raise the dead back to life. We also learned how Jesus gave the apostles very specific instructions. Uh, He sent them on a short-term mission trip, and then we... We, we, we learn the, the reality of ministry. Jesus never romanticized the reality of ministry. He talked about the persecution because of this gospel message that Ken just shared. There is a persecution to this, right? There is a good news, but for there to be a good news, there also has to be a bad news. And, and most people don't like to hear the bad news, and they come They'll come at us with a vengeance. Jesus then encouraged the apostles. He told them not to fear anyone or to fear anything except God alone. We are to fear the right thing. We are to fear the right people. And then Jesus closed his sermon by discussing who is worthy of him and then who is not. Really, the the last part of his message was on priorities and I suggested that that we review our own priorities. It's always a good thing to look in the rearview mirror just to see kind of what direction we're we're kind of veering off into. Are are we on the straight and narrow or are we we off just one degree? Uh, We talked about four areas to examine. Are we prioritizing our schedule? Our schedule. Does our schedule glorify God or does it glorify ourselves? We talked about our work. Our work is important. It is a priority, no doubt, but it's also a God-given gift. We are to serve the work. We're not to be a slave to it. We talked about our, our hobbies and our money and our free time and our, all of those areas in our life, are, are those things being sanctified? Are we allowing God to sanctify those things in our life? And then lastly, we talked about all the cultural issues that we face today. Are the words that are coming out of our mouth, are they filled with grace and truth regarding politics and abortion and all the glamorized sexual sin that we hear about every single day? Or are we afraid to speak up? Well, all of that, believe it or not, has been a review from the past five weeks. Uh, Today we start chapter 11. And Jesus provides such a teachable moment for all of us here. And it's it's a a subject matter that we all deal with every single day. Uh, In some form or fashion, we're dealing with doubt. I mean, it's one thing to doubt whether the, the Diamondbacks would win the World Series. It's one thing to doubt whether so-and-so is going to win the election, right? But what does Scripture say about doubt? Do you guys sometimes doubt your own salvation? 
Do you doubt that God has truly forgiven you for your sins? Yeah. That's called a bad case of the normals right there. Is doubt a virtue? Is it a vice? Well, those are the questions uh, before us today. They are big ones. So let's find out. If you would, please stand now for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. Words are on the screen. If you would please read this text with me as one voice in one church. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Guys, these are the very words from God this morning. These are his words to us as a church, and they, they, hold, they hold the authority. They are inerrant. They are inspired. They are infallible. They are beautiful. These are beautiful words, and I, I pray that we hear them as such. Please pray with me. The psalmist writes, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Father in heaven, we can't thank you enough for being our help and our shield. Thank you for protecting us against ourselves. Thank you for protecting us from our silliness and our stupidity and our lust and our sin. Thank you for the gift of grace through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank you for the story from Ken this morning that you are working. Lord God, thank you for that God intersection. Thank you for that divine disruption to this young man's life. And may we see more of those. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat, guys. Thank you. Let's dive in. Verse 1 here. When Jesus had finished giving instructions... To his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. So the disciples, they've been with Jesus now for about 18 months. Jesus officially sends them off on their first short-term mission trip. So just imagine, you know, you got the apostle Peter bringing everybody in. All right, boys, let's pray this out. Let's get together. Let's huddle it up, right? And then we go, go team and go Jesus. And then they scatter. Uh, we know that that the other Gospels, uh, Jesus sent them out two by two. They, they are not alone doing this. Their assignment was to preach the good news and heal people, once again, to prove that the Gospel message is true. So back to verse 1. So he, that's Jesus. Jesus moved on from there to teach and to preach in their towns. So notice here, Jesus doesn't take a break. He's not on a sabbatical. 
he continues to teach and preach in Galilee. So Jesus is focused. He stays on mission. And although Jesus is now alone, or he sends the, the 12 out, he's not alone. He most likely has other people around him. He's got other disciples. He's got the women disciples with him. Notice the importance of Jesus' mission. And this is so important for us. It's twofold here. Jesus is teaching. He's teaching. We learn that Jesus read the scriptures and explained the scriptures. That's what he did when he went to the synagogue. He was an expositor. He did exactly how, and we're following how he taught us. He also preached. He told people to repent of their sins because the kingdom of God is here. It is here and to put their faith in him as their savior. So he taught and he preached. Verse 2, now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and he asked them, are you the one to come or should we expect somebody else? Now this John is John the baptizer. John has been thrown in prison because he rebuked John, uh, I'm sorry, he rebuked King Herod for his sexual sin. Long story short, uh, Herod, and this is so creepy and weird, right? He seduces his brother's wife, his sister-in-law. Talk about being awkward at the family gatherings. John calls Herod out on his sin. Herod reacts like most people do when, uh, when people call out others or they call, they call us out on our own sin, right? Well, how dare you tell me what I can and cannot do? How dare you? And that's what King Herod did. He, he threw John in prison. So in verse 2, when John... When John heard in prison, when he heard in prison, well, what did John hear? Obviously, he didn't have an iPhone. Uh, how did, and how, how did he hear it? Well, he probably heard about the power and the purity of Jesus' preaching. He probably heard about all the miracles. How did he hear all of this? Well, through John's disciples. Now, prison in the first century is not like our American prison system today. Our prison system today is pretty much like a Scottsdale resort. Three square meals, uh, got a lot of latitude. Um, this is not what John was experiencing. Herod threw John and basically into a dark hole at the bottom of an old fort, Macaris, uh, left them there to die. That's what he did. Macaris is a hot place. It's a desolate place. It's uh, near the northern part of the, of the Dead Sea. And if family or friends, if they didn't visit John, if they didn't bring him food, if they didn't bring him clothes and water, he would have died in prison. So John's disciples, they're doing their best to take care of him. And you can bet they're giving John an update on Jesus every time they visit. Back to verse 2. When John heard in prison what the Christ was doing. So our gospel writer, uh, Matthew here, he gives us this theological clue in verse 2. Why doesn't Matthew write Jesus? Why, does it, why doesn't he say, when John heard in prison what Jesus was doing? 
Don't you like to ask those kind of questions? Well, guided, guided by the Holy Spirit, Matthew refers to Jesus' title, the Christ. Jesus is his first name, obviously, and that means God saves. Jesus means God saves. Christ is Jesus' title, and it means the anointed one. It means the Messiah. So when you put Jesus' first name and his messianic title together, we receive this monumental theological clue from God the Father. And it's this. Jesus Christ, God saves, how? Through his anointed one. God saves through his anointed one. Now, John the baptizer, he knows this. Before John was thrown in prison, he preached it, right? John, in Matthew 3, 2, he says, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So John knows that the kingdom is now on earth. He also knows who the king is. And that's why Matthew says, Christ. Back to verse 2. When John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, John has learned what the Christ is doing, right? He's preaching, he's teaching, he's performing miracles. But pause right here. It seems that John is more interested in what Christ is not doing. Look at the text again. Verse 2. When John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, well, he, he sent a message through his disciples. So John sends his disciples to go talk to Jesus. And they ask him a question. Hey, Jesus... <laughs> Are you the one to come, or should we expect somebody else? So John is sitting in prison, and he's, he's got questions. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have questions if you're sitting in prison? Prison tends to, men, to, to make men think. So let's put ourselves in, in John's shoes for a minute. When John first got thrown into prison, he probably thought, it's okay, it's okay, the Christ is on the scene. He's going to spring me out of here in no time. No sweat. And then a week goes by. And then a month goes by. And he just sits there, thinking and thinking and thinking. And then he starts to get biblical with questions. You ever do that? Maybe John thought, well, you know what? Don't the prophecies say that the Christ is going to open some prison doors and set the prisoners free? Yeah, yeah, it does. I'm not going to begin here much longer. Just a little bit more time. This is no problem. No problem at all. And then another week, couple weeks go by. And then another month. Now he starts to get frustrated. Maybe he starts to get depressed. Time just... A year goes by. So the next time John's disciples visit, John sends them to ask this question. Hey, Jesus, back to verse 3. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? In other words, what's going on, Jesus? You are the Christ, aren't you? I mean, that's what I was preaching before I got thrown in, into prison. I mean, was I wrong? Was I wrong in my preaching? No, 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 I, there's no way. There's, just, there's no way I can be wrong. I saw the Holy Spirit 
descend upon you with my own two eyes. There's no way I can be wrong. I, I heard the Father speak from heaven with my own two ears. There's no, there's no way I, well, well, wait, maybe I am wrong. Maybe, maybe it was just a vision. Maybe I was just dreaming this whole thing. I mean, why did Jesus need to be baptized in the first place if he wasn't a sinner? I still don't understand that. And why, and why was Jesus tempted in the, wilderness, in the wilderness since God can't be tempted? That makes no sense to me. And what's, what's the deal with all the fishermen? Why, is, why does Jesus have all these fishermen as, as apostles, these stinky fishermen? <laughs> these guys need to take a shower. And now that I think about it, why isn't Jesus in Jerusalem, the holy city, doing all the teaching and the preaching? Why is he in Cornville? <laughs> I'm just making sure you all are awake. What, Jesus, what are you waiting for, man? I mean, why haven't you taken over Herod? Why are the Romans still in charge when God in the flesh is walking around? What are you waiting for? Oh, and Jesus, here's the last thing. Why am I still in prison? Why, why am I still in prison? You ever feel like that? You ever ask those kind of questions? I hope so. I want you to know that you're not alone today in asking hard questions like that. You ever get frustrated by what God isn't doing in your, in your life rather than what he is? Are you all worked up by the things that you'll never be able to change? Or maybe, just maybe your questions are much more personal. Say things like, Lord, why... Why am I still imprisoned with my own family? Why, why, why am I so codependent on other people? Why, why am I still enslaved to all these finances? This job, I used to like it, I don't like it, I have to stay there. I'm working way too much. Why am I so angry, God? This anger has turned into depression. Why, why haven't you taken care of this stuff? Why, why am I still imprisoned? Why haven't you set me free? Well, a little sermon and a sermon here. This verse is actually embarrassing for the universal church. Theologically, we call this the criterion of embarrassment. And it's embarrassing to the church because many Christians believe that there is absolutely no room for doubt in your Christian life. So let's talk about doubt today. Is doubt a virtue? Is it a vice? More importantly, once again, what does Scripture say about doubt? Well, if you did a word study on doubt, you're, you're going to find that it's scarcely used throughout Scripture. Um, but oftentimes, the sense is there. And, and what I mean by that is that the word's not used, but there's a theme. There's a theme of doubt baked within the passage itself. So as you read it, you can kind of feel the doubt. Let me give you one example. In the, in the temptation of, of Adam and Eve, Satan asked a question 
that provokes doubt within God's character. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, hey Eve, did God, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It's baked with doubt, isn't it? Genesis 37, 33, uh, Joseph's brothers sold him into the slavery. If you know this story, they took his robe off of him. They splattered it with animal blood, and then they gave it to their father. And then in verse 33, his father recognized it, and he says this, it is my son's robe. It is. So the sense here in, in verse 33, 37, 33, is that without a doubt, without a doubt, this is my son's robe, and he's been killed by a wild animal. When Job was talking to his friends, he actually used the word doubt. In Job 12, 2, he says, no doubt you guys are the only wise people on the earth, right? And, and the wisdom's going to die with you. You smell the sarcasm there? And then you fast forward to the New Testament, and you think about, well, who's the poster boy for doubt? <laughs> Doubting Thomas, right? John 20, 27, Jesus says, put your fingers here. And guys, look at my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side. And then he says this, don't be faithless, but believe. If you have the NIV, it says, stop doubting and believe. The New Living Translation says, don't be faithless any longer, believe. The ESV, do not disbelieve, but believe. The Amplified Version says, don't be faithless and incredulous, but stop your belief and believe. The NET says, do not continue in your unbelief, but believe. And the NCV, this is really good, look at this. Stop being an unbeliever and believe. So doubt is closely related to fear, which Jesus talked about a few weeks ago. Jesus told Peter, as Peter started to sink, as he's walking on the water in Matthew 14, 31, he says, you of little faith, why? Why'd you doubt, Peter? When Jesus was walking with the disciples, they saw a barren fig tree. Jesus cursed it a few days earlier in Matthew 21, 21. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and you do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. After the resurrection, Jesus stood before the disciples and he said in Luke 24, 36, he says, peace be with you guys. But they were startled. They were terrified. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus, he says, why are you guys troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? So if we're not supposed to doubt, why is the greatest prophet? Why is John the baptizer? 
Now, many people will use uh, James's epistle as a proof text for doubt. Let's look at this because this is very, very important. James 1.5. James says, if, any, if anybody lacks wisdom, well, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. So pause here for a second. Notice that asking God is precisely what John the baptizer is doing. James 1.6, but let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. You think John's asking in faith? In other words, do you think John's question here is a legitimate question? Because sometimes it's, it's really hard to know people's tone. Uh, as we read scripture, there had to be a, a different tone between the disciples' doubt, Jesus' disciples' doubt, and John the baptizer's doubt. There must have been a longing, a sensitivity in John's question that wasn't present when, um, when the disciples doubted. So what's going on? Well, John's question, what it does, it provides an opportunity to simply clarify what kind of Messiah that Jesus is. John is asking in faith here because he knows that Jesus is the Christ. But the problem is, is that John doesn't know the whole story. John doesn't have all the information, so he's simply asking Jesus to clarify. See, it's not that John doesn't trust or, or believe in Jesus. John's not hesitating to believe. He's not wavering in his faith. He's simply honest enough to come to Jesus and ask a simple question so he can get some confusion cleared up. James 1.7 goes on, so that person, so that person that doubts should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. So here we have a really big clue. We get a different kind of doubt, don't we? James is talking about wishy-washy people. James is referring to the type of people who don't have a backbone. He's talking about people who don't have a conviction about Jesus. John the baptizer is a man of, of conviction. Uh, we're going to see that next week. Key point number one. Doubt is not always a sign of sin. It may be a sign that someone's thinking. Doubt is not always a sign of sin. It may be a sign that someone's thinking. However, whenever there is a critical attitude, whenever there is a hardened heart, whenever there's a prideful arrogance, whenever there's, and this is really important, an unteachable spirit to a person, faith is going to be absent. Faith is going to be absent in that conversation. Let me give you an example here. In Acts 17, Paul is teaching and preaching. When the crowd heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. Your translation may, may say that they sneered at him. They scoffed at, G, at, uh, at Paul and they doubted. So from a, from a New Testament biblical perspective here, doubt equates to a couple things. Let me show these to you. The most common form of, of, 
of doubt is unbelief. This is a noun. It's just unbelief, right? We choose not to trust. The second is when something is unbelievable. This is more of an adjective to where it's beyond belief. Jesus does a miracle and you're, whoa! It's, it's beyond my, compre, uh, my comprehension, my understanding. And the third is just distrust. It's a verb. I choose not to believe because my mind's already made up. I don't care how much information that you give to me. I don't trust you and I don't trust the information. Distrust. So let me give you a very simple definition of doubt here before we move forward. It's a state of uncertainty regarding God, his word, and his works. It's a state of uncertainty from either unbelief, something being unbelievable, or just my distrust. So with all that as a background, let's look at verse 3 again. Are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? Pretty straightforward question from John. And by the way, guys, Jesus likes questions like these, and he still does today. He loves questions like these. John is not coming at Jesus in anger. Not like the scribes, not like the Pharisees. And by the way, John is not the only prophet who has ever had these kind of questions. He's not the only guy that's had a bad day or even a weak moment. Remember Elijah? Elijah wanted to die after that crazy woman Jezebel is trying to chase him down. The prophet Jeremiah cursed the day he was born. Wow, that's a bad day. <laughs> Isaiah, he asked the Lord, how long am I going to preach if nobody's listening? That doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. And then when we come to John the baptizer, and guys, look, John is not just a prophet. John's a prophet, a prophet's prophet. He's a super prophet. And yet it seems like even John has a kryptonite moment. Now pause right here because I really, really hope that you find all of that encouraging. The most significant people in the Bible, all of them, had weak moments. Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, on and on and on and on. They all doubted. They all feared. They all had a bad case of the normals. Every single one of us. Now, we know that John believed that Jesus was the Christ, but John's circumstances here, they've changed dramatically, right? He's in prison, and not only that, but there's a delay in, in Jesus judging sin. There's this increasing opposition to Jesus, and all of this really has, has shaken John's uh, confidence. Don't we do the same thing? Something happens in our lives and we start asking some tough questions. We become disappointed that Jesus is not responding to how we think Jesus should respond at that moment. We ask questions like, well, if Jesus loves me, then, then why? Why is he allowing this, whatever this is, to happen? We put our expectations on Jesus as if we know what, 
what to do better than him. But once we grasp, and this is a big but, guys. Once we grasp the truth and the reality that Jesus not only loves me, but he is sovereign. In other words, there's not one single thing in the entire cosmos that is out of his control. Then we realize that that not only did this, whatever this is, not, not only is it happening in my life, but God ordained it to happen. Well, this is a tragic thing in my life. Why would God ordain this to happen? Why would he do that? For God's glory. He ordained it for God's glory. It's always for God's glory. And oh, 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 it's for our good too. Have you ever wondered like what Joseph was thinking when he was in prison in Egypt? Uh, do, you, do you think Joseph ever, it ever crossed Joseph's mind as he's sitting in prison rotting away that he would be Egypt's prime minister? And some people say God doesn't have a sense of humor. And then we, we got John the baptizer. He's the greatest prophet who ever lived until this time and he's just a bit confused. And once again, I pray that you take great comfort in this. This is not a faithless doubt. This is a, a faithful doubt. Key point number two, anybody can have doubts. So if you're a doubter, doubters are in good company. You're not isolated. You're not alone. But watch this. How does Jesus respond to John's doubt? Verse four, he says, all right, guys, look, I want you to go and report to John what you hear and what you see. You guys have seen all this. You've heard it, right? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy, they're cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised back to life. And the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. So first things first here. Notice the grace that was extended to John by Jesus. So we too should extend that same grace when our friends and when our family start to doubt and they start to ask genuine questions. Jesus clears up the confusion here because what, what's happening is John's confusion, it, it comes from his own lens. He viewed Christ as someone bringing judgment. And that's why John's message was always about repentance, right? But, but look how Jesus answered. It wasn't through judgment. It was through salvation. So John got the cart before the horse, just like many of us. John expected Jesus to bring justice and judgment along with salvation and healing. But so far, Jesus has only brought grace. John said this. He said, he was preaching and he said, the axe is already at the root of the tree. The problem though is that Jesus hasn't started swinging. Before Christ judges people, John, Jesus, the Christ, he's got to give them the opportunity to hear the gospel, to repent, 
Many times when God gave his, his, uh, his messages to the prophets, the prophets, they, they didn't fully understand the message itself. And I think we see this, an example of this, when, when Jesus came to John for baptism, right? John balked at baptizing Jesus. He, he couldn't understand why Jesus wanted him to baptize him since Jesus was sinless. See, if John had completely understood Jesus' mission, he would have instantly baptized Jesus without any questions. Because he would have known that even though Jesus was sinless, Jesus still needed to obey the whole law of God. So Jesus' baptism wasn't about sin, it was about obedience. Now look, at, look how John asked this question. It's kind of in code for us today. Everybody in the first century knew what was going on. Verse 3, John says, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? If you've got the NASB, that translation says, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? The expected one was a common designation for the Messiah in the first century. So how, how does Jesus answer does he give a yes or no? No. <laughs> this is a real question by, by John, and Jesus took the time to give him a real answer. So look at this answer. Verse 5. You go tell John that the blind receive their sight. The blind are seeing, John. Well, how is that possible? Because the Messiah because the kingdom of God is near. You tell him that the lame walk. Well, how's that possible? Because the Messiah is here. Those with leprosy, cleansed. The deaf, how can they hear? The dead are raised back to life. How's that possible? Because the Christ is walking among us. And the poor, oh, the poor, they are told the good news. Nobody cares about the poor except God. So God is telling the poor the good news. So what, Je what Jesus does here, he answers the prophet's question through another prophet. This is so fun. The prophet Isaiah says that the Messiah will make the blind see. In I Isaiah 29, that the Messiah will make the lame walk. In Isaiah 35, he will cleanse the lepers, Isaiah 61. The Messiah will make the deaf hear, Isaiah 29. He's going to raise the dead, Isaiah 11. And he's going to bring good news to the poor, Isaiah 61. Everything that, that Jesus was doing was prophesied five to 700 years before Jesus was even born. So it's like Jesus is saying, don't worry, John, I got it. I haven't forgotten. The judgment thing's coming. I've only delayed it. I haven't forgotten it. I've delayed it. And then in verse 6, he goes on to say, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Blessed. Oh, this is so good, guys. Blessed. It means that, that you are highly favored by divine grace. You're highly favored by divine grace. Blessed is the person who isn't offended by Jesus. 
So it's as if Jesus answers John's question and then he starts, they start walking away because they want to go tell John, right? And, and it's almost like Jesus says, and, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And he looks up at the crowd and that's a message for them too. It's as if Jesus is saying, guys, I want you to be careful. Be careful of placing your expectations and your opinions on me. Don't do that. Let me ask you this. Do you, do you think John had all of his questions answered before he was murdered by King Herod? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you're going to have all of your questions answered before you die? Or are you, are you irritated? Are you angry? Because you're, you're living through some questions here that you'll never be able to answer. And you're, you're demanding God answer these questions before you believe. And Jesus says in verse 6, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Offended, it means there's a stumbling it means you're appalled, that someone is filled with disgust. And many, many times it's a loss of faith. It even could be apostasy. Uh, apostasy is where somebody walks away from Jesus altogether. That seems to be the cool, hip thing to do right now. A lot of these bands, these contemporary bands, they're, they're deconstructing their faith and selling millions of albums. And authors are doing it too, selling all these books. And they're like, oh! Sorry, I changed my mind. They're walking away from Jesus. I find this fascinating, that Jesus closes with what John expected. He's talking about judgment. So for those, for those people who are offended by Jesus, Jesus will judge them. But for those who are not offended by Jesus, Jesus provides grace. Today, technology has uh, contributed to our offenses. We live in an age where it, we're just the easiest to offend. We go out of our way to be offended. When, when I was working for ADF, when I was working for Alliance Defending Freedom, there was a lawsuit of this guy who, uh, there was this large cross, I forget, it was a state park, it was on state grounds or something like that. And he drove 20 minutes out of his way to go home to see that and choose to be offended <laughs> when he could have gone a different way. We choose to be offended. There is a difference between taking offense, like getting my feelings hurt, or being offended by a legitimate wrong, um, a moral issue. Uh, many times we take offense when, when none was intended. Um, many, many times we've got thin skin and a hard heart, and it really needs to be the other way around. We should also pause when the scriptures offend us. When I'm up here teaching and preaching and something rubs you the wrong way, I have a friend that says, if I go to church and the preacher hasn't offended me, he hasn't done his job. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that. 
God's moving and shaking and irritating. He's, he's moving the rough edges, right? When you're offended by something that comes out of his word, pause and ask why. What's, what's whoa, why, why, why is there a visceral reaction to this with me? Jesus blesses those who are teachable. Having a spirit of teachability means that, that we bend. What we do is we bend our thoughts and our ways to God. Being teachable means that you're, a, you're able to adapt and change. How do you know? How do you know if you're teachable? Well, it's pretty simple. You're able to change your opinions about your opinions. That's how you know you're teachable. Being unteachable, however, it means that you would rather break your neck than bow your head. So is doubt this morning, is it a virtue or is it a vice? Is doubt a sign of an open mind or a mind that lacks conviction? I want to give you uh, three major contributors to doubt. The first one is tragic circumstances. When a believer has faithfully, sacrificially served the Lord for many years, experiences some kind of tragedy or even a, a series of tragedies, it's normal to have doubt. When a child dies, when a spouse dies, when a spouse leaves, when illness strikes, it's okay to have doubt, and it's okay to ask questions. Now, there is a difference in asking. We can ask this way. Hey, God, where are you? Where are you when I really need you? I mean, why, why have you let this happen to me after all, everything that I've done for you? Where are you? Why aren't you helping me? Another way we could ask is, God, where are you? I can't see you. I can't feel you. I'm numb right now. I need your help. I've got doubts. And God, I am scared. Please know that this is a moment that we are tested. The demonic forces of the world, they're going to magnify our faithless doubt, right? Which in turn, it just magnifies more faithless doubt. That happens all the time. And this is when people walk away from the faith. So if you've got, you've got that tape running in the back of your mind, 2 Corinthians 10.5, we want to take those thoughts captive and place them at the foot of the cross. We want to take them, um, uh, take those thoughts captive unto Christ. A second contributor to doubt is incomplete revelation. Uh, we doubt today just because we don't have the full story. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We have, we don't have enough knowledge. We don't have enough understanding of God's will. But here's the other thing, guys. 
The Christian who is immersed in Scripture and is committed to the local church has little reason to stumble when it comes to doubt. When God is allowed to speak through his word and his people, see, doubt vanishes. A third cause of doubt is just the world and the culture that we live in. Many believers are are confused about all these world events because they they don't understand what's going on around them because they're they're not in God's word. They're, They're spending their time too much in the world. They're watching the news, listening to the talking heads. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody, everybody's got a YouTube channel. Everybody's got a voice. And their minds are so full of the, the, the ideas and the opinions of people that they fail to understand God's plan even when they read Scripture. Why? Because they're spending more time in the world than in the Word. We continually hear people ask, you know, if God loves everybody so much, then why this? And why that? And why this? And why, and why, and why, and why? If if God is so loving, if he's so merciful, well, the the God I believe in, there's no way he could send anybody to hell. See, people say those things because the Lord does not fit within their box within their preconceived ideas of what God should be like. And because of that, people doubt, they become angry, indignant, even blasphemous. I want to close with one last story out of the Gospel of Mark. If you want to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9... Mark chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw them, they were amazed and they ran to greet him. So that's Jesus. And he asked, so Jesus asked these people, what are you guys arguing about? Someone from the crowd said, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that, that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams at the mouth. And he grinds his teeth. And he becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to drive it out, but, but they couldn't. And Jesus replied, he said, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How much, don't you love this? It's it's like Jesus is exhausted. How much longer do I have to stay here with you people? (laughs) They brought the boy to Jesus. The spirit saw him and it immediately threw the boy into convulsions, convulsions. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foamed at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked. Listen to this. The father says, this has been happening from childhood. 
And many times it's thrown him into the fire or water to destroy him. It's trying to kill him. But Jesus, if you, if you can do anything, we'll have compassion on us and, and help us. And Jesus said, if, if you can, huh? Well, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cries out and he says, Jesus, I do believe, but you, you got to help me with my, my unbelief. I love that scripture. Jesus, I believe, but man, you, in this moment, you have got to help me with my unbelief because I don't know what to do and I'm scared to death. Help me with my unbelief. Dear friends, if you're in that place now, if you're coming out of that place or maybe you're going into that place, seek the Lord's face. Ask for wisdom. Search the scriptures. Get honest with the Lord. Get real with the Lord. Ask some trusted friends. And the Lord will, I promise you. I promise you. He will help you with your unbelief. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. Thank you for teaching us that virtue is, I'm sorry, that doubt is both a virtue and a vice, depending on how we look at it. I pray, Father, that we are able to, to take these things that that have us in a state of doubt, these things that we're fearful of, and that we do lay them at the foot of your cross, and that we would maybe write our doubts down and, and take them to you, ask you the truth of why we doubt and why we fear. Thank you for meeting us where we are, Lord God. Thank you for teaching us your word verse by verse. And Father, may we, may we realize that there are hundreds and thousands of people right here in the Verde Valley that, that doubt as well. And maybe, just maybe, you would use us to give somebody hope that they don't have to stay in a state of doubt. That we can share Jesus. We can give people hope, this gospel message. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.